They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators can't make a breakthrough in that time, their chances of resolving the case are greatly diminished. But what if they don't make a breakthrough in the first 48 hours? Or the first 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head and one of the UK's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 27, The Real George Robinson. I needed to identify the real George Robinson, once and for all, the man who lived in the wooden shack off Waterside Road, who according to our narrator, had told him the truth about the death of Fred. Now there was a George Robinson, who died in 1995 in Burton, around the time that people seemed to think the man in the shack died and he tracked back to Louth in Lincolnshire. But could we be certain that was the right man? That really was the man in the shack with the dogs. And to be honest, there were a few too many indicators that it wasn't. In order to make a positive identification of the real George Robinson, I needed to be certain about the date of death of that man in the shack. Only then could I access his records and get the story behind the real George Robinson. But that date of death was proving very elusive. Everyone I spoke to, and I spoke to a lot of people because George Robinson was well known, a lot of people knew him, but everyone had a different opinion. Some said the 70s, some said the 80s, some said the 90s. A few people asked me well, why don't you just look through the newspapers of the time at the magic attic? Well, for two reasons. Firstly, it might not have been reported in the Burton Mail. And secondly, each year has four thick volumes, about 3,000 pages per year. And if I can't narrow it down more than the 70s, 80s and 90s, that's 30 years or so, or 90,000 pages to look through. Now, I could do that, but there wouldn't be another podcast in 2022. So I really needed to narrow down in some way this date of death, because if I could get it within a year or so, we've got a real chance of identifying who he is. But the only real resources available to me were people, memories, however nebulous they seem to be. Someone must be able to give me that definitive date. Something that is not just a memory, but underpinned by some kind of factual, provable evidence. I just needed to find the right person to tell me that. And the first part of this podcast is about how that part of the investigation progressed. I put some feelers out on Facebook, but also the local newspaper, the Burton Mail, ran the story of the podcast as a big splash on their front page on their New Year's Day edition. So a lot of people around the area, Burton, Stapen Hill and Windshill, were reading about the podcast and the case. And that's very much to my advantage. People were starting to make contact with me. But as I waited for these responses to come in, I decided to use that time 
to go and visit the site of George Robinson's shack myself, just to get a feel for the place. I went with the man who told us the story, the narrator, the same man that according to him, George Robinson had himself told the story to at that shack. A few of our local listeners will know exactly where the site is, but many won't. So I think it's a good idea to describe it. Firstly, we're in Stapenhill, across the River Trent from Burton. And as the river winds its way south from Burton, Stapenhill spreads away from the river for about a mile as the land rises away from the river. And the majority of Stapenhill is built a fair distance from the river because as we know, the Trent floods notoriously. But Waterside Road, as the name suggests, is right next to the river, right on the extremity of Stapen Hill. And the further south along Waterside Road that you go, the houses become fewer. There are some flats on the left-hand side, but on the right, between Waterside Road and the river, there are a few houses built very close to the river. And in the distance, there's a bridge. And that's the bridge that carries the Leicester line away from Burton towards Leicester. And as you walk towards it, the houses on the right, between Waterside Road and the river, start to thin out. As you get close to that bridge, there are a few wooden built houses over high fences. And a couple of those are definitely still occupied. But then you run out houses on the right hand side and there's open ground as you approach the bridge. But 50 years ago, there were shacks there as well. And it feels as the wind whips across the Trent, a pretty isolated part of Stapen Hill. But we still haven't reached where George Robinson lived. To reach that, you need to go under the railway bridge. The road swings back towards Stapen Hill. So there's no road under the bridge, only a footpath. And that footpath takes you to the speedboat club, which I can see fenced off in the distance. But as you come back into the sunlight from under the railway bridge, on the right, that's the site of George Robinson's shack. So it's away from all the other houses. It's separated by this railway bridge and it feels even more remote than what we've just left behind, cut off really from the rest of Stapen Hill and cut off from the rest of Waterside Road. The site is larger than I expected and it's massively overgrown, but there's a path through it, not a formal path, just a way people seem to have found through to the river, maybe fishermen. And there are no foundations as such, nothing obvious that is left of that shack, just a depression really in the overgrown brambles to indicate something might once have stood there. But there is debris. A collection of asbestos roof sheets are in one corner of this plot of land. And the site seems to run as far as the boat club. So probably half an acre or so. And that's quite an area for a small shack and the dogs to roam. And it's dangerously close to the river. The Trent floods ferociously, and there must have been times when George Robinson, who was living here, must have been completely flooded out. But it is 
very private, very solitary. You only walk past it to get to the boat club. And not many people would have walked past to get to the boat club, probably gone in the cars. So George Robinson wouldn't have been disturbed by many people. For a man looking for a solitary existence, a lonely existence, he'd found the right place. So there's not very much to see, but you do very much get a sense of what living in a place like that might have been like. Remote, windswept, and in the middle of January, pretty bleak. I was just taking a final wander around that site and something caught my eye. The rim of a plate, about three inches long, decorated with the gaudy floral design of a long bygone era, oranges and purples. And I find myself speculating, that might have been George's plate. It's unlikely to be anybody else's. So I pick it up and I put it in my pocket and we walk back to the car. And it's in the office with me now. So when I'm struggling to find the real George Robinson, I find myself picking it up and channeling him and asking him for help. So let me explain how I went about trying to identify George Robinson since we last spoke. Essentially, this was the strategy. One, look through every death in Burton of anyone called Robinson or a close approximation, so Robertson, Robson, Roberts, to see if there's anything that might suggest it might be him. Secondly, look through the online newspaper archives for Burton using the same names and also searching for Waterside Road, Stapen Hill, Leicester Line Bridge, even Alsatians. Thirdly, speaking to people, as many people as I could who say they knew George Robinson to try and narrow that death date down to a couple of years, a window of maybe a maximum of three years that I could use. Fourthly, having decided what that death date range is, visit the Magic Attic and go through every Burton mail in that time period in the hope that one, they covered the story and two, I picked the right date range. And fifthly, if I could then narrow it down to a couple of people, I could order the death certificate and hopefully get a match with the man in the shack. Looking through every George Robinson or variant of that name in the births, marriages and deaths and probate records proved inconclusive. There are a number of candidates who looked interesting for a time. George H. Robinson, Harold George Robinson, George William Robson, George Walker Robson. They all interested me for a while, but they all checked out. And what I mean by that is they all died at an address that wasn't Waterside Road. They died somewhere else in the Burton area. That meant it wasn't them. Now that was strange because we know he died where he died, but all the identifiable deaths on the records didn't seem to be the George Robinson we were looking for. Secondly, there's the UK online newspaper archive. Now it's important to note that's not definitive. Every newspaper is not there. So for example, the Burton Observer, which is the weekly newspaper in the area is on it. 
The Burton Mail, which is the daily, is not. But it's still worth checking. So I was checking for Waterside Road, Alsatians, George Robinson, and all the variants of it. And it yielded some very interesting stories, but nothing that linked us to our search for George Robinson. Thirdly, and this is where I've spent the vast majority of the last couple of weeks, was talking to people. And it's always the most productive exercise. It's very slow. It takes a lot of time to find the right people. It takes a lot of time to set up the calls. But ultimately, it's always where you find the diamonds. And George Robinson was a well-known character. There was no lack of people who knew him or claimed to know him. And these conversations divided into two groups based on their generation. Older people who knew George when they were adults and younger people who knew George when they were children or adolescents. From the first group, there was a lot of detail, a very exact picture of him physically, his routine, the dogs that followed him around without a lead. But frustratingly, absolutely no agreement on the date of death which was the real prize I was looking for, because if I've got a day to death, I can then open up everything else about his life. But this group gave me a very wide range of dates of death from 1972 to 1992. So when I'm trying to narrow down where to look, that's a very limited use. The younger group who knew George when they were children, well, they remember the dogs, they remember being told as youngsters not to go under the bridge, being chased by the dogs. Remember the shack being demolished. So the details of George himself are much more loose, but the estimate of the date of death, far, far more consistent. Always 1990, 1991 or 1992. And these dates were remembered because they coincided with other things that were happening in these people's lives. I was just finishing junior school, or I'd just moved to the area. So we could calculate the date of death by associating it with the other things that were happening in these people's lives. So on the subject of the date of death, much more consistency. And I had a decision to make. On the subject of the date of death, I went with the younger witnesses account because it was being underpinned by something else, some other event in their life. And as it proved, I was right too. Thanks for downloading the podcast. It's wonderful to have you along on the journey with me. And we've been getting a lot of new listeners recently, particularly in the local area. So welcome to the family. I think the coverage in the local paper on New Year's Day has made a really big difference. And local people learning about the case is very valuable as it may stir some memories in people that could prove to be very very useful and there's another benefit as well because it makes it much easier for me to talk to people I'm becoming quite well known in the area as this fella investigating Fred the head and so people are starting to want to talk to me so I'm not just a random stranger trying to pry into their memories anymore so a big thank you to Helen Kreft, who's the senior reporter at the Burton Mail, for her continuing support for this project. I remember talking to Helen 
right at the start of this, before any of the podcasts were released. She's always been very, very supportive of it and what we've been trying to do. So a warm welcome to our new listeners. Make sure, if you're on Facebook, you visit the Facebook page run by Neil DeVille, who was Fred the Head. That's an ongoing discussion about the case. Now, last time, in the last podcast, I asked for people listening around the world to let me know who they are and where they are. And I've had lots and lots of emails from Alaska, Australia, Pittsburgh, Seattle, and Tanzania. And the thought of someone listening to this podcast, looking up at Mount Kilimanjaro as herds of African animals wander by, is pretty breathtaking. And I'm just a little bit envious. So, thanks for emails. I reply to them all. And please keep them coming. I'm really interested in knowing where everyone is. And this is not really like most of the podcasts. We really are all in this together. But I still need to find George Robinson. So, let's get back to the story. So, at least I had a plan. Go to the Magic Attic, this repository of Burton mails throughout the last century, and search 1990, 1991, and 1992 for anything that pointed towards someone called George Robinson in Waterside Road, Stapen Hill. It felt like a long shot, I have to be honest. And it felt a lot more like a long shot as I was wading through each month of these papers. But at least this time, it was electronically. The later editions are in digital form, so the search was quicker, but still fruitless by the time I'd reached the end of 1990. But suddenly, there it was, on Friday the 15th of February, 1991. And I'll read it to you. It's titled, Plea for Relatives. It says... Police want to trace relatives of a pensioner found dead at his home in Stapen Hill on Tuesday. They say that 83-year-old Mr George Robinson died from natural causes at his Waterside Road home and so far have had no luck in finding his next of kin. Friends of Mr Robinson say he spoke of having a brother and sister. Police say he was married in 1938 but that was later annulled. His brother, whose mother died in childbirth, could be living in the Middlesbrough area and his sister in Doncaster. Inspector Ian Dade of Swaddencote Police said, I know he spent many years in the American Merchant Navy and also worked on oil rigs. He had lived in Stapen Hill for about 20 years and I'd like anyone who can help in any way to contact me at Swadlingcote Police Station. That's what was in the paper. And that is definitely Robbo. So what does that tell us? That small cutting in the Burton Mail about George Robinson. Well, it tells us a remarkable amount, really. Firstly, it tells us when he was found. He was found on Tuesday. So that would be Tuesday the 12th of February 1991. So we know he died on or before Tuesday the 12th of February. And he was 83. So that means he was born in 1907 or very early 1908. 
and that's much earlier than I'd expected. He was married in 1938, and that clearly didn't work out, but it should be in the records. His brother could be in Middlesbrough. Now, for non-UK listeners, Middlesbrough would be considered the northeast. So that's this northeast connection working out. His brother's mother, so therefore George's own mother, died after giving birth to his brother. He has a sister who, in 1991, may have been in Doncaster. He worked in the American Merchant Navy and on oil rigs before arriving in Burton. And he'd lived there for around 20 years, so that would take you back to 1971. But in fact, I'm certain he'd been there for closer to 30 years, because I have people knowing he was there in 1962. And he died of natural causes. That should be enough to find out much, much more about the real George Robinson. I have to admit, I was feeling pretty pleased with myself as I made my way back to the car in Swaddenham I obviously still don't know how all this fits together. But this had been the most difficult search for someone throughout this whole investigation. Probably because he was living off the grid. So it might just be a tiny piece of the mosaic that we've just put into place, but it really felt like a little victory. And one strange thing. As I put my hand in my pocket to get my car keys out, I felt the rim of Georgie's plate in my pocket. And I don't remember putting it back in there. I probably did, subconsciously. But I have to admit, I took it out and I looked at it and I thanked him for his help. So, now we had the key to open up a lot more about George Robinson's life. And let me walk you through what we were able to find out. Firstly, we found an online death certificate, but not in Burton, Staffordshire, in Swaddencote, and that's in South Derbyshire. Now, slightly strange because Staben Hill, where he died, would normally be classed as a parish in Burton-upon-Trent, which is in Staffordshire, but maybe the clue is in the article because that death was being investigated by Swaddencote police for some reason, not Burton police. And maybe that explains why this death didn't appear in the Staffordshire births, marriages and death records. But there was a couple of oddities about that online death certificate from Swaddencote. Firstly, his date of birth was given the 7th of April 1908. And that's a little strange because that wouldn't make him 83 when he died. That would make him 82 when he died. And he's named as George William Robinson. But he is shown as dying in Swaddenham area in February 1991. So that sounds like our man. But I've ordered the death certificate to make sure, to make absolutely sure. And I'll let you know next time. There's a chance it's not him. But I'm 90% sure it is. But what we absolutely do know is that George Robinson, the man in the shack, with the dogs died in February 1991. But let's assume that man with the online 
death certificate is our man. Let's see what else we can find out about him. Well, that man with that date of birth appears on the 1939 register. And where does he appear? Middlesbrough. And that tallies with two important things we know. The mention of a brother potentially living in Middlesbrough in the police account in the paper we've just found. And also this suggestion of a North East accent, which we heard from someone who knew him and was also from that region. The 1939 register showed other critical, crucial information. He was living at a house called 21 Alfred Street, Middlesbrough, with Dorothy Robinson, who was born in 1906, presumably his wife, and Maureen Robinson, a daughter born in 1938. So again, that seems to tally with the newspaper article who said he'd been married in 1938 and that marriage was later annulled. And we find George William Robinson living in Middlesbrough, married to someone in 1939. And we also find a George W. Robinson passing his merchant shipping examinations in Newcastle in 1940, which again is in the report in the paper because he went on to work for the American Merchant Navy. So I'm pretty sure we're on to the right man here. What we do know is that the police report in the Burton Mail is definitively George Robinson in the shack, Robbo as he was known. I think we know now who he is and where he is, Middlesbrough in 1939. We're still trying to piece together some other aspects of his life, particularly his brother and his sister and his mother and the story all around that. But that should be available in the next podcast. And also by that time, I'll have the official copy of that death certificate. So it feels like we're finally starting to get our arms around the real George Robinson. Still a lot more to learn, definitely. And what we don't know, by the way, is how he truly fits into the story. We can't prove he has any involvement in this case yet, but the pieces are starting to fit together. And by the way, there's a twist in the tale of my search for George Robinson. One of the people, the older people I spoke to in this search for George Robinson had a lot to tell me about George and not just about George. During that conversation, it became increasingly clear that this man not only knew George well, but critically, he knew Mr. A well, extremely well, as well as our original narrator knew Mr. A. And that's critical because at last, this story that I was told in episode 23 could now be checked with a completely independent source. And that would be a huge stride forward in either proving or disproving that story. And there's something else you need to know. That story I told you in episode 23 was only part of a bigger story. There's more much more to tell about that. In fact, a complete backstory of Mr. A and the other people 
who may have met the same fate as Fred. Fred, it seems, wasn't alone in dying at the hands of Mr. A. And if it's true, this is where our story gets a lot deeper and a lot, lot darker. And we're going to start with what I can find out about Mr. A. But that's for next time. So, until next time, have a good one. The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head is a GSE Media production. Written, produced and narrated by myself, Ken Davis.